Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Our sermon today is from Psalm 129. These are God's words. A song of ascent. Many times they have assailed me from my youth up. Let Israel now say, many times they have assailed me from my youth up. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They lengthen their furrows. Yahweh is righteous. He has cut up the cords of the wicked. Let all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like grass upon the rooftops, which dries up before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves, the fold of his garment. And those who pass by will not say, the blessing of Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. As you know, I've been working through the Psalms of Ascent, and after last week's sermon from the end of Psalm 130 on who Israel are, I thought I would choose a psalm that built upon the things that I taught about covenant theology. So today we're going to meditate on the first two verses of the psalm and consider covenantal identity. Let's consider the meaning of the psalm first, and then we'll work through the practical implications of what I'm saying later. The psalmist begins by calling all Israel, young and old, to say something together. Evidently, the psalmist thought that it was good and necessary for Israel to say this truth together with one voice. Verse 1 says, Many times they have assailed me from my youth up. And then it says, Let Israel now say, and then repeats himself, Many times they have assailed me from my youth up. So, the psalmist called Israel to acknowledge together the sufferings of their people. It is reasonable to think that this repeated phrase has a central place in the meaning of the psalm. Israel was, and will always be, a persecuted people. They are a hated people because they are God's people. And there is something of value in them saying and acknowledging this out loud and publicly in a song. So what is the value in this public acknowledgement? I think this can be answered in a few ways and from different angles, but the main reason is given to us with this psalm. The psalmist acknowledges Israel's suffering first in order to highlight God's faithfulness through their suffering. The sufferings of Israel is a fitting backdrop for highlighting God's faithfulness. Israel has been persecuted from all sides in all ages But the enemies that have come against them have not prevailed. Why? Because Yahweh is righteous. We see this in verses 2 through 4. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plough is ploughed upon my back. They lengthen their furrows. Yahweh is righteous. He has cut up the cords of the wicked. Yahweh's righteousness led him to cut the cords of the wicked that persecuted Israel. Their power was cut off. This is the central reason why Israel was called to acknowledge their collective suffering together, because God, time and time again, ended their enemies' ability to plough their backs. Like a heavy plough is forced into the surface of the earth and dragged over it with a powerful ox, so Israel's enemies dug lines in their back. God allowed their backs to be ploughed for a time, but he put an end to it, because of his covenant faithfulness. He identified with them 
and promised to be their protector, and his word didn't fail. That is because he is righteous. He will not go back on his word. We're going to consider what God's covenantal faithfulness looks like in future sermons, but today I want to answer the question I raised earlier from a different angle. What is the value of Israel publicly acknowledging their sufferings together? I think that phrase, let Israel say, can easily be skipped over by the modern reader. But if any interpreter is to exegete this passage well, that is to draw the meaning out of the text, they should catch the profound teachings that are in that phrase, let Israel say. For Israel to say, many times they have assailed me from my youth up, referring to the sufferings of previous generations, It is making a big claim about human identity and how we can and should relate to the people of the past. The psalmist believes it is possible to look back on the sufferings of Israel in previous generations and say, that suffering was mine. That has to be the case, right? This psalm is teaching you that you can do that. In fact, you should do that. Otherwise, the psalm is a weird fantasy. Imagine Israel under the wonderful prosperity and peace of King Solomon's kingdom, singing from the comfort of their golden temple, Oh, how we suffered in Egypt. Imagine them doing that if there was no such thing as a covenantal identity that they were part of. It follows from the psalm that in some sense, even those prosperous saints in Solomon's day suffered in Egypt. The psalmist is telling and in a sense commanding Israel to identify with the people of previous generations and particularly with their suffering. How can that be? Well, implied in this command is the idea of covenant, covenantal identity. Implied in this command is the reality of bodies and human beings truly and organically being connected through time beyond death and beyond a geographical location. It is a connection that is invisible, yet very real. The various experiences of different groups of individuals are integrated into a whole, a body, and that body, as it passes through time and history, is called Israel. This is the Israel that I described last week as outer circle Israel. The people connected to God by covenant, the covenant made with Abraham and his seed, or his household. So today we're going to springboard off the ideas found in the first verses of the psalm and consider what covenantal identity means practically. I think that often Baptists, and especially the dispensational variety, when thinking about covenant theology, and particularly infant baptism, struggle to know the practical importance of wedding your babies, as they might say. uh, And to that I would say, yeah, fair enough. Covenant theology is not often taught in a way that it lands easily in the real world. It stays up there in a theoretical space, provoking more debates than practical application. From my experience as a Baptist, I didn't hear Presbyterians stressing the practical importance of infant baptism. What I did hear, generally, were dry defenses of a mysterious biblical practice that we should obey without knowing the reasons for it. We baptize babies because, you know, the covenant. Again, 
I'm speaking generally and from my experience. No doubt that isn't the case for everyone. But speaking from my experience again, it wasn't until I heard the practical importance of infant baptism that the position really clicked for me. The practical implications of covenant theology then leaped from nearly every page of the Bible as it did with our passage today. So what leaped out, out at me from Psalm 129? The children of Israel, the little ones, even they were being called to identify with the sufferings of previous generations with this psalm, and there is something profound and even logical to this. Why were children called to identify with the sufferings of the covenant people? Because, of course, they were covenant members, and they too were drawn into the suffering of Israel. They were truly part of a righteous people, set apart in the world for God, and therefore they too were enemies of the wicked powers in their day. Israel, as a people, were hated for no good reason. They were hated because God had identified with them, not necessarily because of any choice that they had made for God, but because of a connection that God made with them. The covenantal connection caused the hate. They were elected to be part of outer circle Israel, which came with tremendous benefits, but also at times immense sufferings. The benefits far outweighing the sufferings for those who had faith in their covenant head, the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality of covenantal identities, communities or bodies is clearly taught in scripture, obviously. But stepping right back for a minute, I'd also argue that this is something we can draw just as easily from the world around us. We can intuit it because it is built in the fabric of reality. I'll show you how soon. But in order to make this point, I first have to say something a bit controversial or pointed about Baptist theology. This will be true but hard words. Here we go. Baptists are trying so hard to live consistently with their view of Scripture that they end up bending the world around them to fit it. What do I mean by that? This will require a bit of explaining, so please bear with me. Since Baptists understand covenantal identity and inclusion to be grounded in individual choice, they unnaturally push their children out of the covenant circle they belong in until they make a choice, and this can and has had devastating consequences. Since covenantal identity is built into the fabric of reality, your children will feel it when they are not being included as they should. You can try to explain what you are doing from the pages of the Bible, but it won't make your actions any more natural or feel any less like a pushing away. God made his covenant with the household of Abraham because of the nature of households, not because that is what he wanted to do with covenant at the time or for the benefit of a new covenant understanding that will come later. Let me explain it another way. The household of a man is a natural extension of himself, and this is more than a religious or spiritual claim. It is built into the fabric of reality. So for God to identify with Abraham and not his household, it would be like God separating a head from its body. It would be an unnatural divide. While it is true that individuals have gods, households also have gods as do nations. 
So God, keeping the household structure intact, the one that he wisely placed into creation, he claimed all that was Abraham for himself, including his household. While pagans do not acknowledge God, even they see and acknowledge that this is the way God structured the world. As a parent, you naturally know that every child given to you is born into your culture, your beliefs, your way of life, and it is right to expect them to live in accordance with those standards. There is no invitation needed. They are by default part of your household culture. Inclusion is assumed and expected. It is conferred by birth. And with all this, all that comes from being a part of your parents' people is unavoidably yours, both the good and the bad. You are born with an inheritance, both cultural and financial. You are born to build upon something that was being built before you came. If you have no regard for the building, buildings of your father and your forefathers, you are a useless son, despising your inheritance. This explains the rage that comes from pagans when a member of their family converts to Christianity. It undermines their family culture and robs a father of his heritage. It is familial theft in their eyes. It undermines the pagan culture that they want to build and maintain. This is why Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be the members of one's own household. Now Jesus didn't say this because under the new covenant, he wanted to do away with the family as like a primary body and create a superior familial bond in the church. I've heard, heard Baptists say that. The church should have the strongest families full of peace. Jesus said this because he knew what happens when a person abandons and undermines the culture of their unconverted family members. There's a shift of heads, shift of cultures. A new convert will not join in their family's godless way of life, and instead they will even work to rid their family's way of life from the earth through gospel preaching. This creates hatred so strong that swords may be drawn. Whether you are a pagan or a Christian, you are born with a natural sense of the responsibility you have to your cultural inheritance, to maintain it and to add to it. The only, one, the only way one wouldn't have this burden on their conscience is if it is unnaturally undermined by an individualistic kind of teaching, one that does away with the covenantal realities that are built into the fabric of creation. All this to say, if you are born to parents that are building the church, being a part of God's people, Israel, it naturally follows that you will, as a child, be part of what your parents are building. And also, this is the point that we can draw from our psalm today, you will be a part of the hardships, the trials, and the persecutions of being a Christian working for the extension of the kingdom. The benefits and the trials come by means of the covenantal relationship you were born into. And this reflects a natural law that is at work in the world. Now what can be a very bitter baptistic pill to swallow 
is the imposition of Christian hardships on a child without the benefits of covenantal identity and covenantal blessings. The children of Israel suffered for their covenant inclusion. They were babies born in the desert. Herod killed covenant kids. All Israel were born into the same sufferings, young and old, past and present, because they were all included in a suffering body. So it is natural for the children of Israel in any age, even ours, to say, many times they have assailed me from my youth up. Because whose youth is the psalm referring to? The youth of an ancient body. The people of Yahweh's youth. The original singers of the psalm were a part of an older Israel, Israel when it was in its youth. But that youthful Israel, the one that suffered in Egypt before them, was only different by age. It was the same Israel, the same body, just younger. Think about how an individualistic understanding of the covenant, or covenant inclusion, can't make sense of this call to Israel easily. It wouldn't make sense to reduce the sufferings of Israel to the sufferings of regenerate inner circle Israel. The sufferings was felt by the whole body from its youth onward. Just as a mixed membership of Israel has not changed with the new covenant, the nature of Israel's sufferings have not changed. My kids have suffered for my beliefs. Why? Because the nature of the covenant is the same. The covenant is made up of households, and new covenant households are pulled into the same conflicts as old covenant households were. When parents are persecuted, the children feel it too. They lose things because of their parents' commitment to God. My children have had to bear some of the burden that has been laid on me. They've felt my absence when I'm trying to process unjust attacks. Church strife will often affect the home. Persecutions from non-Christian workmates often affect the home. I'm often employed in kingdom labors, which take me away from my children. Other fathers don't have their attentions divided between church and family. They've understood the dangers imposed on our household when we disobeyed the state during COVID. They know they don't have some things that the world has because we are Christians. Though it hasn't been any major suffering that they've experienced, they have suffered what comes with covenant membership. To call it anything other than covenantal sufferings robs them of a covenantal promise that follows from the sufferings in the psalm. Added to the burden that parents can bring to a household, Christian children have their own burdens to bear. The world irrationally hates the offspring of Christian parents despite them having done nothing. The world knows that our children's identity is with the Christian God, even if some Christian parents do not acknowledge it. The world wants to take them from under the loving nurture of their covenant heads and disciple them in the way of another head, the beast, conforming them into their image and the ways of the world. The war against the seed of the woman goes on. It didn't stop with Christ's coming. There are Nebuchadnezzar-like leaders who try to force a Babylonian culture on the children of Israel through state education. And there are Pharaoh-like leaders that would just kill them to maintain their satanic power. 
The nature of the battle has not changed, and that is because the war against the covenant people, both old and young, has not changed. This being the case, and this is our big application today, we must do our best as parents to diligently train up our children with a robust understanding of their place in the covenant, teaching them to expect the burdens that come with being fellow members of Israel and teaching them the blessings of God, God's protection upon them as God's people. This leads us back to our psalm. Our kids should quite naturally identify with the Israel of the psalm. It was a psalm given for Christians in the Old and New Covenant ages. When it says, let all Israel say, we should not expect our children to be silent. Their covenantal identity is with us. They are part of Israel. One of the huge benefits or utilities of saying these things together as Israel is it reinforces the invisible God-established bonds that are truly there between those who sing them. Identity matters, and no one who is a member of good standing at Redwood should feel on the outside, including children. And as a side note, this is also one reason why we practice Pado communion Added to these benefits, knowing our God-given identity makes sense of our experience, of our sufferings. The people of God have always suffered, and it is a blessing to be part of that suffering. Our identity also gives us hope in our sufferings, because the wicked have never, nor will they ever, prevail over Israel, the covenant people. Our covenantal identity also enriches our lives. We carry with us the weighty significance and rich history of our people, Israel. We carry with us the immense glory of our mission. When we join in with the singing of Israel, it is no small thing, and our children must understand this. Covenantal inclusion should fill us with gratitude and joy. Earlier I said that a Baptistic understanding of covenantal identity can have devastating consequences on covenant children. Not always, but it can. I think it would be helpful to show how that theology can lead to these negative consequences, and it will highlight the importance of a Presbyterian understanding of the covenant. So I'll try to sketch out a few examples that will be familiar to your experience. First example, a Baptistic pastor with an individualistic understanding of the covenant, who pours his life into his church, will find it hard to bring his sons and daughters along with him on his mission. The divided mission of his household causes disintegration and a lack of cultural cohesion in the home. Our Lord taught us that a house divided will fall, and this principle applies to every kind of house, to every covenantal body. We often see Baptist households divided culturally. It works out in their individualistic choices of music and dress and so on. There, are that there can be multiple cultures operating under one roof. These children raised with Baptistic theology often seek out other firmer cultural identities with clearer integration points. How many emo pastor's kids do you know? This kind of wandering often happens with pastor's kids, 
because they sense the covenantal suffering of their home and the cost of Christian living, but without a covenantal understanding and no sense of responsibility to the covenant, they have no good way of sorting it all out in their head. Dad is logically the one to blame. The whole, su- the whole family is suffering because of his calling. The children didn't ask for this. Dad imposed covenantal suffering on them by his choice. Instead, children of Christian parents should be taught that God has imposed these sufferings on their household. He always does this with, good, uh, with Christian households, and he does it with the good of every member of those households in mind. It was God who wanted to make covenant with them. It was not Dad's choice. In their baptism, he did nothing but submit to God's choice of them. They need to understand to whom much is given, much will be required, with an emphasis on the much that is given. They need to be taught the tremendous sin of despising a good inheritance, that the responsibilities laid on a Christian child, given a Christian culture to maintain and build upon, are not a burden. All of their natural responsibilities under the covenant are rooted in love. Your kids need to know that as covenant kids, God wants them to be taught in the way to eternal life. Their heavenly father loves them and he will take care of them. You need to regularly say to your sons and daughters, place your faith in my God and our God. Not with one big burst of what could be called justifying faith, but with a consistent, stable, everyday kind of faith that continually holds on to the promises of the covenant. He has always been a faithful covenant-keeping God to Israel. He has always been a faithful covenant-keeping God to your dad, and he will always be a faithful covenant-keeping God to you. And a second example of how individualistic understandings of the covenant can cause damage to covenant children is by provoking unnecessary doubt. Since baptism is often withheld from covenant children, these children will naturally raise the bar on their assurance of salvation to something other than a simple, childlike faith. True faith becomes one that is impossible when you are old. Uh, sorry, true faith becomes one that is only possible when you are older and when you are willing to make a watery kind of commitment. Since the standard of that true faith is subjective, it remains vague and abstract and hard to attain. Constant reflection on the quality of their faith leads to a crippling focus on their sin and depravity. In the worst cases, it can lead a covenant child to give up altogether. It's all too hard. Their sin is too great and their faith is too weak. They think I may as well go somewhere. I know I will be accepted for who I am. It won't require a shift of identity. Instead, we should follow the example of the apostles and be liberal with baptism and covenant inclusion. They baptized 3,000 in a day with no artificial examinations or prerequisites. This is how God would have baptism, the sign of covenant inclusion, administered liberal administration about the only time liberal administration is good in the book of acts 
we also see of the nine people singled out in the baptism narratives, five clearly had their households baptized. That's Cornelius, the jailer, the jailer Lydia, Crispus, and Stephanus. Two, other, uh, two others had no familial household for obvi obvious reasons. That was the Ethiopian eunuch and Paul. And that leaves two more. Simon, who actually turned out to be an unbeliever, and then Gaius, who was likely listed with Crispus' household and the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So that's all of them accounted for. Without building a proper case for the position of household inclusion into the covenant from these texts, we can at the very least draw from the examples we, we have in the book of Acts that individuals and the members of their households were not subjected to lengthy examination processes to see if their faith was genuine before baptism. The members of the household were baptized on the same day as the head of the household. They were immediately identified with God and the head of their household. Uh, the, sorry, they were immediately identified with the God of the head of their household and were called to live a life of faith under his good lordship. The biblical example is very simple and straightforward. If we follow it, we won't run the risk of creating artificial hurdles that can lead to our children unnecessarily doubting their faith. We're going to finish by reading a large section of 1 Corinthians 10 now. This passage will tie together a bunch of what I've been saying today about covenantal identity. In this passage, Paul directly connects the experiences of Israel in the desert, that's Israel in its youth, with the experiences of the Gentile church at Corinth. He is implying that they are the Israel of new covenant times. He says that old covenant Israel were a baptized community like them and even ate and drank of the same spiritual food as they did. He also implies that the new covenant body is mixed, just as the old was. We are a body composed of individual covenant members, and each one of us must take heed lest they fall. That is truly possible. Just as some of the older covenant members of Israel fell in the past. We don't have time to unpack this today, but Presbyterians fall into covenantal ditches too, just as the Baptists do. Many presume upon the covenantal identity of their children, believing that they are saved even though they blatantly reject the God of the covenant. This is entirely wrong. Faith and obedience are required of all covenant members, and we see this in this passage. Without it, we can have no assurance of salvation. So Paul calls us in this same passage to place confidence in the faithfulness of our covenant-keeping God and to cling to him always. The people of God are always called to place their faith in their covenant head, to rely on him to keep them from temptation, and under the new covenant ministry, they are to be sustained and supplied with this better ministry of the Spirit. So let's read this now and see how Paul ties all this together. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, and when he says our fathers, that is, we'll see that this is outer circle Israel, our fathers were under the, uh, all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them 
and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Amen.